0: Alright, well, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 this morning, verses 1 through 12. Verses 1 through 12. And we're going to be talking about living a full and fragile life. Life is fragile, right? Uh, think some of the things that go through your mind when you think of fragile, right? The first thing that popped into my mind when I think of the word fragile is a light bulb. Uh, maybe because I've broke a few in my time. But you think about a light bulb, you can just, you can shake the thing too hard, right? Uh, you can flip the light switch on too quick or something all of a sudden and it goes out. Uh, you drop it and it shatters in a thousand pieces. Light bulbs are very, fragile. Uh, but at the same time, you don't go to the store and buy light bulbs, even though they come in the nice safe packaging. Uh, whatever kind of light bulb uh, you buy, whether you buy the environmental friendly light bulb or whether you shake your fist at those people and buy the other kind, I don't really care. Not my game this morning. But what, whatever kind you buy, right? Uh, you don't take it and stick it in the sock drawer and never use it because you're afraid it'll break or bust or whatever. It's not what you do with a light bulb. You still use the light bulb, right? And you use it until it goes out and then you go get another light bulb. But the point is that something can be fragile and still be used to its maximum capability. And life is a lot like that. It's fragile. Things happen. We're kind of breakable if you haven't figured that out yet. We get hurt. Um, And ultimately life comes to an end and sometimes suddenly. But that shouldn't cause us to retreat from life and kind of live in a shell somewhere, put ourselves on the shelf. We should live life fully. And in a sense, I believe that is the big theme here of these 12 verses in Ecclesiastes. In a sense, which is almost sort of like a summary of a lot, a lot of what we've already been studying over the last several weeks. Uh, Ecclesiastes, for those that are new with this, is a wisdom book in the Bible, kind of like Proverbs um, Song of Solomon, Job, some of those books in the Old Testament. So when we read Ecclesiastes, we're supposed to get wiser. Uh, we're not, the book doesn't tell us who exactly wrote it. Many believe it was Solomon and it very well could have been, or it could have been someone that had Solomon in mind as a type of character for us to think about when we wrote it. But either way, they wrote it for our wisdom. And it's a book that confuses a lot of people because it's got this word in there that our translation that we use here uh, calls vanity. Others, uh, it's the Hebrew word havel. And it can be translated vanity or it can be translated inscrutable. It literally means breath, so it can mean vapor. And so it can refer to, it's a very complex word, which makes Ecclesiastes kind of a hard book at times because at times he's using the word to mean different things. And in our translation it just says, Or whatever your translation might say. But in the Hebrew, it can have all these complex meanings, and some of that is the complexity of the book. But the idea is that life, when lived detached, apart from God's design, in this fallen world, can feel at times futile. It can feel like you're chasing the wind, right? Like trying to to, like that, like trying to to grab hold of water. You know, it's just it just it, it can be frustrating. And life is brief and it's fast and detached from God can can feel rather meaningless. And so Ecclesiastes warns us of that. It's a very honest book about life in a fallen world. And it's a fragile life. It's a brief life. Things can change on a whim. And this is the reality that we live in. And that life that we've been given by God needs to be lived fully. And that's... What we're going to talk about this morning is how we can do that. So, this is what we're going to do. We're going to, rather than just kind of read the whole thing, we're going to read a few verses at a time and talk about those verses and uh, and kind of work our way through it this morning. So, if you don't have a Bible, it's on the screen for you this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Let's look at the, right there in the first couple of verses. He says, But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. So he says, he's been writing for a while now, and at times Ecclesiastes can be a little circular, and he brings up stuff he's already talked about. And he's saying, you know, as I I think about all this, as I lay it to heart, as I examine everything that I've been talking about, The righteous and the wise, their deeds are in the hand of God. What does he mean by that? He means ultimately God is sovereign over everything. God never takes His hand off the wheel. Nothing ever surprises God. Nothing ruins God's ultimate purposes. Even though things sometimes frustrate and confuse us, God's never frustrated and confused over those things. Now, we don't know what tomorrow holds. He says righteous people, wise people, both experience good times and bad times. That's what he means. We don't know whether it's love or hate. We don't know whether it's a good time or a bad time, favor or disfavor. We, we really don't know what tomorrow holds. Now, this verse, in this passage, flies in the face of what some people believe. Some people believe that if you love God, and if you have enough faith in God, that you'll be healthy, and that you'll be wealthy, and things will generally always go great for you. And this is both practically inaccurate, if you've lived long at all, let's say a few years, and it's theologically a mess, and completely wrong, and detached from what the Bible teaches. We don't serve a God, the Bible teaches, that spares us from difficult times. We serve a God who walks with us through difficult times and promises to His children to ultimately, in the end, work all things together for our good, even even though we can't fully understand how in the world that could possibly happen in this life. Now that's more complex, and that's harder, and that's simpler, but it's truer than telling you that if you live a good life, and everything you do, you try your best, and you always try hard, and you believe God, and you do everything this way and that way, that everything will always be perfect for you. I could tell you that this morning, and tell you if you just have enough faith, you'll never get sick, and if you just uh, uh, sow your uh, money well enough, and invest it well enough, and give enough of it away, that you'll definitely be rich, but I would be a lot and a false prophet and a heretic. So we don't want to do that this morning because that's not what the Bible teaches. And so the very first verse here in Ecclesiastes is flying in the face of much of what is taught in some churches all across America. Verse 2. It is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. Encouraging words here. From the writer of Ecclesiastes. You see that phrase, under the sun. He uses that throughout the book. And when he says that, he's referring to life here on this earth as we see it in a fallen world. And and throughout the book, what he's trying to do is to get us to lift our eyes above the sun. To the one who created the sun. To realize just what's under the sun in a fallen world is not going to satisfy. We need what is beyond the sun. We need the creator. We need to fear God. So... But Ecclesiastes, as you can tell in this, these two verses, would have us to think about death and deal with death a lot throughout the book. In fact, there's, if you've been here for the last several weeks, you probably think this is all this guy talks about. It's the one reality you can't change. And that's what he's pointing out here. Death is real. Life is fragile. It doesn't matter, he says, if you're moral or immoral. Religious or irreligious, a promise maker or a promise avoider or a promise breaker, good boy or rebel, the same event happens to all. And he's talking about death. And so it doesn't matter you can live your life very well or live your life very poorly You can go to church every day or never go to church at all But there's one thing that we're all going to have in common No matter our economic status no matter our social background No matter any of those sort of things right Whether you whether no matter your political stances No matter where you grew up we all have this in common It unites us all It's a common experience Death Now notice what he says He says man's heart is full of evil and madness He's concerned with our heart. He says our heart are full of evil and madness and then we die. Let me ask you, do you ever get depressed watching the news these days? If you turn it on, you probably do. Right? If you say no, you're probably not turning it on a lot. Why Man, why, do we, why do these things happen? Right? You ever ask yourself when you turn on, why does these kind of things happen? And you just fill into the blank the last horrible thing you heard happen somewhere in the world. And the answer to that is right here in Ecclesiastes it's man's heart is full of evil and madness while they live It's the sinfulness of man He's making it clear no matter who you are no matter your station in life there is this great equalizer that is death and its death is brought about because of sin right he says he says we, we live full of sin and then we die and all the, even back in the old testament sin and death were married and in the New Testament, it even comes to give us more clarity. It says, the wages of sin is death. And so, it gives us even more light into that. Now, doesn't this sound like a wonderful pep talk this morning coming from Solomon or whoever our author may be? Hey, your heart's full of sin? You're going to die, and I don't care who you are. (laughs) Have a nice day. Thanks for coming. VBS is awesome. You know, I mean, that's you're like reading this, and you're like, thanks, Solomon. But then he's got some better news starting in verse 4. Look with me. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. Okay, hope. There's a good word. We like hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. Okay, right? (laughs) He's back, right? Verse 5. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. So, he says there's there's hope. He uses this word hope for the living. He says it's better to be alive than dead. Right? It's better to be a dead, dead dog, a dead lion, than a excuse me, a living dog than a dead lion. And that is true. Right? You get the analogy, right? He's like... I, better be a lion, king of the jungle, than to be a dog. Well, unless the lion is dead, then you're better off being the dog, okay? And so, anyway, he says, um, the point, the bottom line is because it's better to be alive than to be dead. You say, well, that seems obvious to me. Why is that, O writer of Ecclesiastes? He says, because you know you're going to die. In other words, you can prepare. You know death is coming. For the dead, it's already come and gone. The things in this life are over. He's not speaking to eternity here. He's talking to life under the sun, right? The things in this world their envy, their hate, their love, all that sort of stuff, it's gone, right? Their life here is over, and there's no more reward here on this earth. He's saying you have one life to live, and once you die, that life is over. Life is fragile. So live in such a way that you're prepared to die. It's the advantage you have. It's the advantage of the living. is to live well. Well, how do you live in this way that he's talking about? Well, that's what he's going to get into. We're going to park for a little bit. He's talking, here in the way this is laid out, the first few verses, he talks about the fragile nature of life. And then he comes back in the last few verses that we're looking at this morning and talks about the fragile nature of life. And in the middle, in the middle of the sandwich is the meat, which is, so here's how to live. A full life in the midst of a fragile life. Because here he's pointing heavily on death, and at the end he's going to come back and point heavily on circumstances. So look with me at verses 7 through 10. Let's just read these together. So in light of all that, about death, all the dark stuff, now listen to what he says. It's like it changes. Light bulb comes on. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. And so there's kind of four driving forces here uh, that sum up this full life in the midst of this fragile life. And the first one is this joy of knowing God. And it's sort of implicit in what he's saying. Notice he says, he says, go and do this and go and do this. God has already approved what you do. Life Lived fully is lived in connection with God, not in rebellion from God. uh, This particular passage um, and and phrases like it are repeated throughout Ecclesiastes. If you've been here throughout the series, you've noticed that. Go enjoy life, go enjoy life, go enjoy life. He says that like several times throughout the book. This is where he parks on it the most. So it's where we're going to park on it the most but every time he mentions it it's always in the context of relationship with god it's always in context with god's design not in rebellion to god's design for life so he says in other places he says enjoy life as a gift from god so he inserts the creator into the situation not absent from it here god has already approved what you do what is he saying there the idea is that god has already approved You're enjoying of life. In other words, God's not anti you enjoying life. God wants you to enjoy life and live life fully because it's a gift from Him. So God wants you to receive life as a gift from Him and live that life fully. Now, the way to do that is in the context of how the Creator designed life to be lived. I will never fully maximize what life is supposed to be. But He's wanting you to know that God is not anti your joy. Now, Here's another thing though. That phrase there, God has already approved. One commentator pointed out how that phrase sounds very Pauline. And by Pauline, that means it sounds like something you would read out of Romans. Or out of Ephesians. Or out of one of Paul's books. It's it's like a fast forward. Like a foreshadowing of the New Testament and of the Gospel. He's already said our hearts are full of sin. Right? Remember that? Your hearts are full of sin and you die. And now he says God has already approved what you do. How in the world? It should bring a question. If our hearts are full of sin and God is holy, how can God approve of what we do? And it's a foreshadowing of the Gospel where one would come and would live the good life perfectly, who would live sinless Jesus, right? Who would come and would live a sinless life and never do wrong, and so that when He goes to the cross and pays for our sin debt, who bears the wrath of God, that this great exchange happens where we get the righteousness of Christ by faith and our sin is credited over to His account. God treats Him like a sinner, even though He's not, and God treats us like we're righteous, even though we're not. This accounting... It's a foreshadowing of that. And Christians, if you're here this morning and you're a believer in Jesus, you've, had, you've repented of your sin and you've believed in Jesus, Christians do not work for approval from God. We work from approval for God. And the difference in that is whether you've got Christianity or religion. We don't do what we do so that God will approve. Because God has approved of me in Christ, by faith in Christ, therefore now I work from that approval to the glory of God. You say, why should I care about God's approval in the first place? Well, you know you do. Most of you do, even if you're not a Christian, many people think about that. If they think, you know, if there's a God and I'm going to stand before that God, I want him to approve of me. I don't want to be cast aside. I don't want to disappoint him. That's because you're created in His image and his fingerprints are all over your soul. But the only way he approves is the life that is hidden in Christ. But the Christian life is not supposed to be dull or boring. Jesus, the man of sorrows, the Bible calls him, lived a full life of joy. He was a man of joy. He enjoyed people. If you read the Gospels, it's evident he had a sense of humor. Say, I didn't catch that. Read them again. He did. He went to parties. His first miracle was at a wedding party. Believers don't just have joy. The Bible says you have the joy of the Lord. Jesus says He gave us His joy. And that sustains us in difficult times because it's a deeper joy beyond the circumstances in this life. But it should also mean that we're not the world's biggest, sour-faced, annoying, glum people that nobody wants to be around. It's a bad witness. So he, first of all, he talks about the, here, the joy of knowing God. It's implicit in what he's saying now. In verses 7 and 8, he talks about the joy of what I'm calling, because I'm good Baptist, I'm calling it food, fellowship, and fun. Right? We like the word fellowship. We like like food. We like fun. Well, that's what he's talking about in verses 7 and 8. Go eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. What's he talking about? Well, white garments and oil on your head are symbolic of things to be worn on special occasions, such as festivities, joyous occasions. Put on your best duds and go have a good time is what he's saying, right? It's date night. Whatever. That's Put on some cologne, put on some perfume, oil on your head. That's kind of what those things are symbol of. Dress up and go do something, right? Enjoy life is what he's saying. Eat your bread, drink your wine. What's he referring to there? The meal. He's referring to the meal. And in our culture, we undervalue the power of a meal. In fact, it's probably... One of the things that we have comp- we completely miss out on and don't really understand what we've robbed ourselves of. We think of enjoying ourselves. We think of toys. We think of exotic vacations. We've lost to some degree the focus of the simple pleasures in life. Solomon's here talking about joy. He doesn't say, hey, go buy the boat. Hey, go buy the condo on the beach. He doesn't say, don't do those, th- those things. But his point is, joy can be found in very simple places. Like a meal. Meals in biblical times were more than means to nourishment physically. They were means to nourishment socially and spiritually. It would be assumed that you were not eating alone. People just didn't eat alone. Now, you go through McDonald's, you've got your lunch break or whatever, you whirl in somewhere and you like whoop it down, driving down the road, you've got ketchup and salt all over and you whirl. And we call that eating. And in their day, they would have called that weird. (laughs) Guilty, right? We do that. We need to remember how important it is to not just eat, but to eat together. In America, sometimes we excel at eating out of boredom. And we fail at eating in fellowship. Meals can be powerful experiences because it's deeply tied to community. That's why you see that throughout the Bible. I'm going to point out some of that here in just a moment. It's deeply tied to community. So they're powerful experiences to reinforce things, to bring joy, or even to bring depression. You know, one of the most intimidating places I've ever been is a high school or middle school lunchroom. I've been in one of those places as an adult. You don't know if you're going to get out of life. You don't know what they're going to do to you. It's scary. I used to go, when I was a youth pastor, I would go in and sometimes we'd have a special event and I'd go see our students and I would go kind of help them rally their friends and take invites to the event, stuff like that. And it's like, man, it's like, hi, what's your name? It's like, who are you, weirdo? You know, why are you here? <laughs> you now, Some kids, very friendly. Some kids... I want to skewer you, right? And so it was the same way when I was in school. Only then I was one of them. It was a little bit different when I was having to be older. And I was like the student pastor or whatever. But I remember when I was in school, I mean, the lunchroom was, I mean, that was the place where if you were lonely, it was exposed in the lunchroom. If you were an outsider, it was exposed in the lunchroom. And if you were cool, it was on full display in the lunchroom. Meals are powerful things because they shape and define community. They always have. They shape and define who's in and who's out. Why do you think Jesus ate with sinners? Because He came to say, I know you're out, but I came to bring you in. Meals are powerful, powerful tools for community. We celebrate Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter and New Year's and Independence Day and Memorial Day and all of our holidays around what? Food. Even in our culture, we get it. We just don't acknowledge it as well as we should. The Bible emphasizes meals together with people throughout the Bible. Think of how much of Jesus' ministry revolved around meals. Think about this. Jesus' first miracle was at a wedding party, a feast, turning water into wine. Jesus was criticized for eating with sinners. Jesus fed thousands of people on two occasions to show people that He alone is God and could satisfy their souls. And He chose to do it over a meal. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, which is a type of meal, over a meal. Right? And then Jesus' main leader in the disciples was a guy named Peter. And he messed up royally and denied Jesus three times in his most critical hour. And Jesus, before he ascended into heaven, he reaffirmed him in front of the community. He wanted everybody to know that he was good with Peter and Peter was still a leader and Peter was forgiven and Peter was repentant and that he had forgiven all of them for just totally messing up and leaving him hanging out to the dry. How did he do it? Breakfast. You would be hard-struck if you took the meals of Jesus out of the Bible. You'd be missing much of Jesus's ministry. Meals are powerful tools. In heaven, believers are actually going to celebrate around a meal. Revelation 19 9 says, "The angel said to me, write this: Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb." And he said to me, "These are the true words of God." The marriage supper of the lamb is the meal that was promised all the way back in the Old Testament. And Isaiah 25, 6-9 talks about that meal. The Gospels in Luke fourteen fifteen 15-24 foreshadows that meal. And so heaven is a city with a big meal. right? The writer of Ecclesiastes wants you, he's saying here, to go enjoy a meal with some people because it is in line with everything else the Bible is teaching that many times we miss. How much of our family issues could be resolved if we ate as much as possible one simple meal together a day? at a table, and actually had a conversation. The most spiritual thing some of us can do today is to go home for either lunch or dinner or supper and to cook something, put on some music, and spend less time on the couch and more time in the kitchen, and laugh and tell some stories and cook some food and sit down at a table and put your iPhone away and turn your TV off and have a conversation and eat a meal together. And it's the most spiritual thing you would have done all day for some of us, or go out to eat and do the same thing if you don't want to cook today. All right. The home group we started here in North Park back in the spring. The most important thing I believe we did that that was not actually having it in a home was we actually ate together in a home every week. Usually, we bring food, we cook food, whatever, and the Bible study and the community and all that flows naturally around a dinner table. So take some time this week to listen, to laugh, to enjoy a meal together. You're supposed to enjoy it. Right? And always doing the whole driving down the road, slurping it down, throwing, you know, yogurts to people and milkshakes to people and fries to people. we got to do that sometimes. But if that's all we do, we're missing out on one of the joys God has given us to living a full life. Thirdly, He talks about the joy of marriage. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Remember, for those of you that were here, in chapter 7, he talked about the difficulty of marriage due to the fall. So he's a realist. He's not saying marriage is easy. He's not saying you are never going to have a problem or a disagreement in your marriage. However, he is saying it's possible and that you should strive to enjoy life with your wife or with your husband. Marriage is a gift from God. Proverbs Was was written kind of like a father to a son on how to live wisely, says this, He who finds a wife finds a good thing. God is pro-marriage. Marriage is His idea. And when God decided to make Adam a companion, you know what He made? He made a wife. He didn't just make the buddies to go hang out with. He didn't make a golf course and say, Here, here's four friends. Go have fun. Right? He didn't say, Look, here's some things to hunt. Here's a gun. Here's a gun for you. Go hunt. He didn't say, Here, go to work and just hang out with your buddies. I and mean, look, here's a television set. Come over and watch the game. And no, none of those things are wrong. That's not the point. His point. The point is this when God made Adam companionship and when he made him a best friend, he made him a wife. And if your spouse is not your best friend, you're missing out on one of the core points of marriage altogether. God gave you a spouse for more than procreation. <laughs> He wants you to enjoy life with your spouse, not in spite of them. <laughs> he says, the wife whom you love. You know, what does it mean to love your wife, men? The New Testament tells us. Ephesians 5, 25-27 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So that's the definition in the Bible of loving your wife. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water in the Word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So Jesus gives us the example of what it means to love your wife, and it's required sacrifice. You know what else it requires? Great time investment. Because it says he sanctifies her. Sanctification, when you believe in Jesus, you're set apart, but there is a process that takes place in your life where He is making you more and more like Himself. Do you think Jesus chooses to spend time with His bride? Does He choose to invest time with His bride? Does He enjoy spending time with His bride? I believe He does because He loved His bride enough to die for His bride and to sanctify His bride. And so a part of loving your life well is investing time with your wife. Part of loving your husband well is investing time with your husband. He goes on to say that in the same way that just as the church submits to Christ, the wife submits to the husband. Does the church relationship with Christ look like this begrudging, unfortunate consequence? No. We love Jesus if we really belong to Jesus, we love spending time with Jesus when we belong to Jesus. And if we're to model the relationship between Christ and the church for others, then by all means, let's take time to enjoy being together. One day, some of you know this, some of you have lived this, some of you are about to live this, some of you are going to live it in 15 or so years. One day your kids are going to grow up. And they are going to move out. And whether you've got one, two, three, four, five, or however many, right? And they're going to be removed from the equation and they're going to go start families of their own and there are going to be two people left in that home. You and your spouse. So if your son's your best friend or your daughter's your best friend, guess what? They're getting a new best friend. So you better rediscover the best friend God gave you. Some are thinking, I don't enjoy life with my spouse. <laughs> he says enjoying your wife, life with your wife and your, or your husband is your portion in life and the toil at which you toil under the sun. Life is full of toil. It's full of work. And part of that toil and part of that work is marriage. He's not saying it's easy. It's part of the toil. Marriage involves work. Marriage is not easy. We've said before, it's two sinners who have decided to get together and try to be holy, right? I mean, it's like. Friendship is not easy. Marriage is not easy. Sometimes there's actual work involved. You have to learn how to repent and say you're wrong. Here's an even one that sometimes it's maybe even harder for some. You have to learn to forgive and let go of things. Stop bringing stuff up all the time. have to learn to not hold a grudge. If you don't work at marriage, you likely won't enjoy it. If we are relationally lazy, if we refuse to apologize, to forgive, to talk through our issues, then don't be surprised when you wake up one day and you no longer enjoy life with your spouse. Enjoy life with your spouse, he says. Choose the effort that it takes to do this. Make them your best friends. Spend time together. Hang out together. Laugh together. All these things. And if you spend all your non-work time with your hobbies, and not your spouse or your family, nothing wrong with hobbies, then you are trying to enjoy life, but you're not enjoying life with your spouse. You'll be a better parent if you're a better husband, if you're a better wife. I've never met someone that enjoyed their spouse, life with their spouse, was fully invested in their marriage, that were pathetic parents. This just doesn't happen very often. You get the first thing right. The other one tends to fall into place much better. And you can't enjoy life with your spouse if you're the office flirt and your eyes are always somewhere else. Life with your wife. And you can't enjoy your spouse and life with your spouse if you ignore and don't spend time with them. These are all very practical things. This is a very practical book. Now, he moves on from marriage and he talks about work. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. In other words, you've got one life. You're going to die. So while you're here, find something to do and do it. The part of joyful life is a full-hearted effort at your job, whatever your job may be. Whatever you call work, wherever you invest your time, your activity, your energy should be fully invested. He says, do it with all your might. In other words, don't do things halfway. Follow through, commit to it, and throw yourself into it to some degree. One person said, Hand here refers to your ability. Whatever your hand finds to do. Your ability. Finds refers to opportunity. And might refers to intensity. I like that. Take your ability, find an opportunity, and intensely work at it. Your career, your motherhood, your church service, your volunteer work, whatever, should not define you. It's not the point. It should not be your identity. It should not be what gives you meaning, value, worth, and security. Those things should come from God in Christ Jesus. However, doing something with all your might is a big part of living a full life. And and not doing something with all your might is a big reason why some people are not enjoying life today. We need a better theology of work. God has a plan for your work, whatever your work may be. It's God's plan for you to contribute to society in some way. Work is from God. It's not a part of the curse. It being hard and painful and dreadful at times, that's from the curse. The idea of work is from God from the beginning. Pre-curse. Pre-fall. In heaven, we're going to serve the Lord. We're going to work. We're going to do things. Adam worked a garden. Eve was mother of all the living. And maybe you're a lawyer or a doctor, a sales rep, an accountant, a manager, an assistant, an engineer, a technician, a clerk. Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom, a homemaker. Maybe you're retired from your job and you're a volunteer and you serve in other ways. Whatever it is, God has a plan for your hand and God has a plan for your might. Whatever you find, apply yourself to it. Right? Colossians 3, 23-24 says this. Whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, and that's the key. Making the switch, flipping the switch to where we understand we serve the Lord through our work and through our effort, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. He wrote that the bond servants who are in much worse situation than whatever your work situation is. You, said, you don't know my work situation. It wasn't as bad as that one. Wasn't as bad as that one. And he says, you know what? You just remember. Before you serve a boss, you serve a Lord, the Lord Jesus. Your work is not everything, but it is something. Have you ever seen something come to fruition, finished a project, stepped back and felt the sense of accomplishment of just doing something? That's a gift from God in this life. Maybe you don't work outside the home. Maybe you are a homemaker and you stay at home as a mom. And your contribution is just as important and as critical to the family unit. And you should work mightily at what you do in raising children to be launched like arrows into God's mission. Whatever we do, we do it with all of our might. What if I'm retired? What if I can't work a physical job anymore? Can your hand find something to do? And by hand, your ability. Can you pray? Can you write a note? Can you encourage? There is usually something we can do with our might, even if our might is not what it once was. You know, last weekend, we had a funeral here at North Park for a dear church member who had been here for over 50 years. A man named John Davies. Many of you didn't know John. Most of you did. John was 85. And he had a stroke about six weeks, eight weeks ago, something like that. And up until that stroke, he was working about five to six days a week running a pharmacy. He was teaching Sunday school every Sunday morning. He was actively involved as our church treasurer. And he was 85 years old. And you know what he was doing? He was living out this verse. He was using what might he had to use and invest his abilities for the glory of God. It's an incredible example. Do something with your might, whatever might you have left. One thing we need to do with all our might is to serve the Lord and live on mission. We do that in the context of marriage that he's already spoke about in the family unit and our jobs that he talks about here. Eating meals together as we've already talked about. Spending time with people in the normal routines of life. We should be people that fully give ourselves to the kingdom of God and live on mission to advance the message of Christ. Giving ourselves fully to it. Now, a lot of all that, remember we said that we had a sandwich. Fragile, live, fragile. Verse 11. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor to the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to all. He's talking about the surprising nature of life. The race is not to the swift, the battle's not to the strong. All of these things in verse 11 are him pointing out that things don't always go as you planned, as predicted, or even as they really should go. Sometimes the underdog wins the pennant. Sometimes Cinderella gets the dance. Right? These things happen. We call it, we look at it, we call it chance. Random luck or bad luck. He says time and chance apply to all. Sometimes the fastest runner pulls a hamstring in the Olympics. Sometimes the mighty army gets a virus and gets taken out by the weaker army. Sometimes the smartest guy in the room at work is wearing a shirt that reminds the boss of somebody he hates and he takes it out on him. Right? Time and chance, he says, applies to all. Now, that's from the under the sun perspective. A limited human perspective, we see things as, as, as chance. But He's already told us what? All things are in the hand of who? God. What we many times see as chance, God works as providence. Providence. Our deeds are in the hand of God. Nothing surprises Him. And what He wants us to grasp is the seemingly random, uncontrollable, unpredictable nature of life. Why? Why? So that we'll live like He's just told us to live. So that we will embrace living today, realizing that we can't control life, only live it. That we'll have live our fragile life fully. Look at verse 12. He says, For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared in an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Things happen suddenly. All of a sudden, you lose the house. All of a sudden, your health fails. All of a sudden, sometimes, we're dead. He's saying life is, is fragile. Bad things happen. Death happens all that. So what? What He's already told us. So live life fully in relationship with God. Enjoy your spouse. Spend time with people. Eat meals together. Go out and live life. Find something to do and do it with all your might. Live while you can live because you're not going to live here forever. So live fully. So here's my question for you this morning. First, do you have the approval of God that we spoke of earlier that can only be found in Jesus Christ? Life is too short to not know where you're going to spend your eternity. Our hearts, he says, are full of evil. Your friends may not know that about you, but God knows it. He knows your heart, my heart, our thoughts, our intentions. He knows if you're greedy. He knows if you're lustful. He knows if you're selfish. Only Jesus can rescue us and connect us to God. And give us the approval in God's eyes that we need. It only comes through Christ. Our fragile lives need a steady foundation. And that only foundation that can stand up under the judgment and wrath of God is the foundation of Jesus Christ. If you're a believer this morning, are you pursuing God's design for your life? Are you throwing yourself into your relationship with the One who holds all things in His hands? Are you enjoying your relationship with the Lord? Do you need to glorify God today By doing something as simple as eating a meal and enjoying it to His glory with family or friends? Do you need to recommit yourself to your marriage and the enjoyment of life with your spouse? Do you need to commit yourself to your work, your service, whatever your hand finds to do? we need to repent of laziness? Feeling sorry for ourselves? We have one fragile life. One life. It's fragile. The writer here of Ecclesiastes wants us to make the most of it. God wants us to make the most of it. And that begins by being right with God.